Turn with me, if you will, back to the Gospel of John. <clears throat> Basically, we'll look at the beginning of chapter 3 this week, although we're going to pick up with the tail end of chapter 2 that we didn't really talk about. <clears throat> John chapter 2, verse 23, down through 315. Your text. Chemotherapy is probably one of the most brutal treatments that medical science has uh, handed to us. This is a treatment, as many of you know, some of you probably have been through it, had loved ones to go through this. It's a treatment that intentionally kills the cells of our body. The idea is that you will kill the malignant cancer cells, and the healthy cells will be strong enough to survive and be rejuvenated and make us strong and healthy again. I think our text this morning is kind of like a spiritual chemotherapy. It starts out by maybe killing some cells. Some of us might find our faith shaken a bit as we consider this as it kills some of the malignancy of uh, false assurance, false hope that just seems to always grow up in churches, people thinking that things are all right when they're really not. And yet as we deliver what may sound like strong medicine sometimes, our confidence is that God will cause the true faith of his people to survive and grow stronger and that the end result will be that the patient is well, not dying. We'll see, we hope that's what happens. John chapter 2, verse 23. While he was in Jerusalem, the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs which he, which he was doing, that is, Jesus was doing, and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but, you, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. This is a weighty passage. There's a lot 
said here. A lot of things we could run down, a lot of discussions we could enter into, but I'd like for us to see if we can focus it down to two things that I think the text has to say to us where we sit in our situation, two truths. The first is this. You can have it all together and still miss the kingdom of God. You can have life all together and still miss God's kingdom. Let me introduce you to Nicodemus. Over the years, Nicodemus has gotten a bum rap in the church. We often talk about him, him as if he's really the heavy, some slimy, cowardly man who sneaks around at night because he's so afraid of what people might think of him and comes and maybe he's too dumb to understand what Jesus is saying or something, but that's certainly not the case. Nicodemus is a man like you and me. Actually, Nicodemus is a man like you and I wish we were, but we could not live up to his standards. This is a remarkable man, this Nicodemus. That's what makes this passage so powerful. Nicodemus is a man who had it all together. Nicodemus is a man with an exemplary life, which we're going to look at in a minute. But Jesus himself said, he's not fit for the kingdom of God. Think about Nicodemus for a moment. Nicodemus is a man of wealth. Now, it doesn't say that in our text here, but we know it. <clears throat> and since that's so important to us, I thought we'd start there. It appears from extra-biblical sources that we have that Nicodemus was from one of the very most prominent families in all of Israel. He was a Jewish aristocrat. We know that three years later, he personally, probably out of an act of mercy, maybe out of an act of faith, he paid for the spices to have Jesus' body embalmed when Jesus was crucified. He bought a hundred pounds of expensive myrrh and aloes, only the wealthy could live so lavishly. This is a wealthy man. Now we're not a wealthy bunch here, but most of us in the back of our minds think, if we had more money, I'd probably have my life together pretty well. Nicodemus had more money. He was not fit for the kingdom. He wasn't just wealthy, though. He was a man of power and prominence. We read here that he was a member of the ruling Sanhedrin. Now, we don't have anything like the Sanhedrin in our culture. In our, in our government, in our federal government, we have three branches, the executive branch, the president and all of his staff, and the, the legislative branch, the two houses of Congress, and the judicial branch, the, the court. And that's just the civil government, and then, of course, we have church government that's all different kind of thing. <clears throat> in the Jewish uh, government, they had a Sanhedrin, a body of 70, and, the, and this body of 70 was the executive branch plus the legislative branch plus the judicial branch. It was all of the civil government plus it was all of the government of the church. We have no such power base in our society. Nicodemus evidently comes as a spokesman for others. He's evidently a leader of the group because he constantly speaks in the plural. We this and we that. And Jesus addresses him in the plural. Nicodemus is a man of power and prominence. Newt Gingrich would be green with envy at the power of this man. Most of us in the chapel don't have a lot of position or power 
But we're smart enough to know that if you do, you kind of have a leg up and you're kinda, you know, you can have your life a little bit more together if you have a little bit more clout. Nicodemus had a lot of clout. But Jesus said he fell short of being fit for the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was an educated man. Just the fact that he's a Pharisee guarantees that he's a scholar. There never more, were more than 6,000 Pharisees. They were the elite of the elite. But we know that he's an educated man for more reasons than that. Nicodemus is a Greek name, but this is a Hebrew scholar. The Hebrew of the Hebrews. And yet he has a Greek name. Why is this? Because the most prominent families who wanted the very best of education for their children gave them not just a Hebrew name, but also gave them a Greek name. And sent them not just to Jewish schools, but also sent them to the Greek schools to learn Greek philosophy and Greek culture. So that they could function as leaders, not just in Jewish world, but in the whole Greek world. Nicodemus was an educated man. Not only that, but in verse 10, Jesus refers to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. Evidently, Jesus understood that Nicodemus is the prominent teacher of Israel. The man who has uh, people's attention, who has people's confidence in, in this day. Nicodemus is a great scholar. He's an educated man of great learning. Now in America, we kind of think if you have a good education, that'll solve the problems. If we could just get people more educated, that would solve things, right? We would have our life together if we could get educated. Most of us don't have a lot of education. But I guarantee none of us have the credentials this man had. He is educated. He's got it together. Except that Jesus says he falls short of the kingdom. Not fit for God's kingdom. Not only that, Nicodemus is a man of integrity. He's a morally upright man. He's an ethical man. You know, we give the Pharisees a, a pretty rough ride in the way we refer to the Pharisees. Let me tell you, the Pharisees were serious about their faith. There's a lot of game playing about our religion that goes on around us. Interestingly, I've ran into a lot of that since I came to this area, and three times this week, someone said to me, oh, so-and-so is an elder in that church, but boy, you don't want to do business with him. He'll slit your throat. Three times this week I heard that unsolicited. Not Nicodemus. Nicodemus and the other Pharisees, though Jesus faults them for a lot of things, they are people who took a vow before witnesses that they would spend their entire life observing every detail of the biblical law. That's what their life was about. They believed in the total inerrancy of the Scripture. They believed that every word of the Bible was God's word. They spent their life studying it and trying to do it. To live with perfect morality, with perfect ethical system. Nicodemus is a man of integrity. But he's not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus himself said so. One more thing about Nicodemus. I think Nicodemus believed in Jesus. 
This is the most disturbing fact here. That one might even believe in Jesus and miss the kingdom of God. But that's what this text says. Look back at chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. What does it say? Many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and what? Believed in his name. I didn't read that into it. That's what it said. Now, there are no chapter divisions in the original text. That's something we put in there to help us find things. So it goes, talking from this, it goes right into And there's a man named Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus. And what does he say? In verse 2, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you do unless God were with him. Same thing. I think Nicodemus, just like these others, had seen the miraculous signs and believed in Jesus. These people believed that Jesus was actually did miracles. There are a lot of people sitting in churches today that don't believe that. They don't believe that any miracles actually happened. These people believe that Jesus really did miracles. They believe that Jesus was an extraordinary teacher. They believe that Jesus was, a, was sent from God and that he worked in the power of God, that he was a God-powered man. They believed in Jesus. They followed him around. They listened to what he said. There was a group of them, and I think Nicodemus is exhibit A of one of the leaders of the group. But verse 24 says that though they believed in Jesus, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And in chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus specifically tells Nicodemus that he is not fit for the kingdom of God. You see, here's a man who is all that we wish we could be. Wealthy, prominent, powerful, educated, morally upright, good reputation in the community. A, a religious man, one who believes in Jesus. The miracle working teacher from God. He seems to have it all together. What a life. But he's not fit for the kingdom. Does that shake your confidence a little bit? Maybe it should. If you ever thought that your birth to the right family or your position that you gained or your education, even your Christian education, or your morality or your ethical system or your good reputation in the community or your religion or anything that you do, including your acknowledgement that Christianity is the true religion, if you ever thought that any of that would fit you for God's kingdom, for eternal life, your confidence is badly misplaced. Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah, Nicodemus had all of those things. And Jesus says it's not fit for the kingdom. You'll never see the kingdom like You cannot help yourself in the kingdom of God. It is not within our grasp to just say, I'm going to be there. I'm going to have it for myself. It wasn't in 
Nicodemus's grasp, and it's not in ours. Now, if we just stopped there, we'd probably leave here in despair, thinking, man, Nicodemus is better than me, and he's not making it. Am I making it or not? If he's not fit for the kingdom, well, I, I guess I'm not either. We'd be left in despair, except that there's another truth that this passage teaches us, a marvelous, wonderful truth, and it's this, that Jesus came to give us a whole new life. Jesus came to give us a whole new life. In our text here, we have this powerful moment recorded. Here's this giant of a man, Nicodemus, a leader, the teacher, the scholar, the morally upright man of power and prominence and wealth. And he comes to Jesus, the popular teacher, the miracle worker. Great theologian to great leader. And he comes to discuss some point of theology or to check Jesus out on something or for some reason. And Jesus looks this wonderful, successful, morally upright, prestigious, friendly man right in the face and says, Nicodemus, to put it in our vernacular, Nicodemus, get a life. Nicodemus had the life we all want. Jesus said, not good enough, Nicodemus. You need to be born all over again. Or you'll never see the kingdom of God. Now that's not a slip of the lip for Jesus there. He says it three times. It doesn't seem to matter what issue Nicodemus raises. Jesus answers the same. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, Jesus is not putting Nicodemus down here. Though he certainly, he certainly catches him short. The New Testament scholar Leon Moore sums it up this way. He says, in one sentence, Jesus sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for. But why? Because he didn't like Nicodemus? Because he was putting him down? No. Neither is he putting us down when we hear Something that challenges our faith and makes us wonder, why, am I missing something? The glorious truth of the passage, what Jesus is saying is that he has come to give us a whole new life. But we'll never have that if we don't see that we need it, you see. He has come to effect a radical rebirth in us. We need to understand we need radical rebirth. So Jesus tells us something about this rebirth, and I want us to just think about a few different things about it. First of all, Jesus tells us that such a new birth is humanly impossible. Actually, Jesus doesn't have to tell Nicodemus that. Nicodemus, with his great learning, figured that out for himself. That's kind of where he starts. How can a man be born when he's old. I can't enter my mother's womb again and be born, Jesus. No, that's true. It is humanly impossible 
for us to be physically born again. It's also humanly impossible for us to be spiritually born again. We saw that back in chapter 1. You remember chapter 1, verse 13, where it talked about people being born again? And what did it say? They are born not by natural descent, not by the will of our flesh, not by the will of man, but born of God. It is humanly impossible for us to be born again. You can't reborn yourself. You couldn't born yourself in the first place, and you can't reborn yourself. Which brings us to the second thing Jesus has to say about this new birth. And that is that it is a demonstration of the power of God's Holy Spirit. That's how it happens. God's Spirit causes us to be reborn. Look at verse 5 to 7. This is where Jesus says it. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised by my saying, you must be born again. Now, there are a lot of different opinions about what it means here when Jesus says you have to be born of water and of the spirit. We could discuss that at length if you want. Pros and cons are different views. I'll tell you what they are. Some people think that this means natural birth, born of water is natural birth, and then the spirit is spiritual birth. Some people think it means water baptism and then spirit baptism. Some people think that it means the water is a reference to the word of God and the spirit is a reference to the spirit of God. Some people think that this is a birth that talks about the cleansing and the enabling that the spirit does. I tend to agree with those who think that the water is another metaphor for the spirit. That's how Jesus used it in chapter 7. Talked about the living water. By this he meant the Holy Spirit that he would give. The thing about it is that all of those things are true. The point is that rebirth only comes by the Spirit of God. The mysterious working of God's Spirit inside of a person to give us spiritual life where we didn't have spiritual life before. We were born of the flesh. We're flesh human beings. If you're going to have spiritual life, you're going to have to be born of God's Holy Spirit. And that's what the new birth is. God working inside us to give spiritual life where there was none. To give us a new heart. To give us a new spirit. Something we cannot do for ourselves, but only God can do. Now this is exactly what God promised he would do. Back in Ezekiel, he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. Well, it's right there in the Bible. Nicodemus, Jesus said, you should know these things. You are the teacher of Israel. You don't know this. You don't see this coming. You don't understand that God's spirit has to change a person completely New life, new heart, new spirit, reborn. You don't know that, Nicodemus? This is the purpose for which Jesus came. To give us a brand new life. But we want to know, how does he do it? I don't know. Neither do you. 
Nicodemus didn't find out. Instead, Jesus said, I'll tell you what, Nicodemus, let me explain to you. Think about the wind for, the mo for a moment. Actually, Jesus has a little play on words here. You see in Greek, the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word. Two different meanings of the same word. So think about the wind for a moment. You see the wind blow, and boy, you see the trees wave, and you see your roof go off into your neighbor's yard. But he says, you don't know where the wind came from. You don't know how it works. You don't control it. You don't know where it goes after it leaves there. You, you don't understand all about the wind. But you certainly know when the wind's blowing. You can see the effects. You can't see the wind. Or control the wind. Or really understand the wind. Jesus says, so it is with those who are born of the Spirit of God. You don't know how it works. You don't know how, where the Spirit comes from. You don't know how, where he goes. You don't know how he does it. But you certainly know when someone is born with a whole new life. Let me give you an example of that. I was reading uh, James Montgomery Boyce's book on John, and he quotes in there a passage about uh, Dr. Harry Ironside. So you may not have heard of it. He was a Bible teacher and evangelist early in the century. <coughs> when Dr. Ironsides was living in San Francisco one day he was walking and he came upon a Salvation Army group having street meeting well he knew these people and he had worked with them sometimes and they invited him to come and to share a little bit of how God had changed his life and he was happy to do so and so he came and he began to talk to the people that had gathered there on the street corner and as he talked and told them about the Lord there was a man, a well dressed man standing back at kind of the edge of the crowd that reached in his pocket and pulled out his business card and wrote something on the back of his card. Politely waited. When Dr. Ironside finished, the man came forward and very politely handed him his card. Dr. Ironside looked at the card and he recognized the name. I don't know what the name was, but he recognized the name as being one of the prominent early uh, socialists who was noted for going around and giving lectures where he just bombasted uh, Christianity and the Bible and spoke of, of uh, put forth his agnostic views. Dr. Ironside turned the card over and on the back he had written, Sir, I challenge you to debate with me the question, agnosticism versus Christianity, in the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. Dr. Ironside read it again out loud for everyone to hear the man and he said well the truth is I have an appointment next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock but I think I can change my appointment I'd love to debate with you on the subject of agnosticism versus Christianity but he said uh, just uh, so that we know that we have something worth debating so that uh, we know that uh, there's something worth fighting for here he said I will debate you on one condition I have only one condition my condition is this that you will bring with you one man and one woman. People who have basically spent their life being down and out. Slaves of some drug or alcohol or some evil passion of theirs, some bad habit. Some woman who's lived as a prostitute on the streets. Someone whose lives have been, has been in, in shambles for their whole life who have been a, a disgrace to themselves and their family, an outcast from society, the dreg of society. I want you to bring one man and one woman 
of such character who have walked into one of your meetings where you've spoken of the glories of agnosticism and have said, this is for me. I will be an agnostic. And have gone from that place to have their lives changed and become productive husbands and fathers and mothers and citizens and have lived a life that's exemplary, a credit to themselves and their community. If you will bring me, if you will promise to bring me one such man and one such woman, I will promise to be there to debate you at 4 o'clock, and I will bring you no less than 100 such men and women who have been converted and changed by the glorious gospel of Christ, which you condemn. And the man with some good humor says, not a chance and walked away. The wind blows where it will, and you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, but you can see the effects. You and I aren't going to understand how the Spirit of God can work in a person to give them a whole new life. But every time the gospel is preached, it happens. People walk from such places with their lives changed and they begin to change more and more and more so that the person that they used to be and the person they have become are, so, are, are two completely different people. One in bondage to sin and one free in Christ. There are testimonies of that sitting right here. New birth is the demonstration of the power of the Spirit that we can't understand, but we can see it happen. Jesus came to give us a whole new life. There's one more thing that Jesus says here that's important, and that is this, that this new life comes, it's made possible by Jesus' death on the cross. Now Nicodemus is never satisfied. He keeps wanting to know more and more and more and more. And Jesus says, you don't even understand what I've told you. You don't even believe the simple things, simple illustrations I've given you. Now you want to know the heavenly mysteries. But nonetheless, Jesus began to tell him. And what Jesus told him is that this, well, let me read it, verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus takes Nicodemus back to Numbers chapter 21. That's, a res that's an account of Israel back in the wilderness, wandering around. And they were grumbling and angry at God, and God finally had had enough, and he judged them. And he sent among them fiery serpents, serpents that bit them and they died, and they began to die by the by the scores, by the hundreds, they're dying under the judgment of God. And finally, when they were truly hopeless, they cried out for mercy. And God told Moses to make a bronze image of the serpent and stick it up on a pole in the middle of the camp. And if people simply looked at that, they'd get their life back. They'd be healed. They wouldn't die. So Jesus says, here's the heart of God's plan. The Son of God, the only one who's ever been in the Father's presence, who's now come, he is going to be humiliated 
such abject humiliation to the point that he is going to be lifted up on a stake in the midst of God's people like that serpent was on that day of judgment. But those who look to him from their helpless, hopeless situation, those who look to him on the cross will have eternal life. That's how it's going to be made possible. Now, Jesus doesn't go into all the explanation about how these two things tie to each other. It's kind of a challenge for us to think of exactly what are the parallels here, but there are some parallels. The people are under judgment. It's God's wrath that's upon them. And yet God, in providing a way out of this judgment, what does he do? He almost glorifies his wrath by taking the thing of which the, the, the judgment has come and exalting it in their presence. And they have to humble themselves and to look at the very thing that they hate to accept that God might give them their life back. You see, and it was kind of that way with Jesus. People came to hate Jesus. And to this day, the cross is still an affront to us. Here we see the terrible injustice of man. Here we see this bloody endeavor. Here we see a talk of sin and judgment and damnation. And we don't like that. We want a Christianity that's clean and nice, an ethical system. But Jesus says, no, new birth comes through this understanding that in judgment, the Son of Man has come and borne judgment. And he's raised up on a stake like a snake. But that's our only hope because he's there for us. And when we look in faith, we'll have new life. Here the mystery of God's plan begins to be spelled out. It's going to become clearer and clearer as we go through the book. My challenge is, do you have that new life in Jesus? Do you know what he's talking about? As we close, I want us to distinguish clearly between two kinds of faith. There's faith and then there's faith. There's a malignant, cancerous faith that looks like faith, but it doesn't save anyone. And there's true faith by which God gives us faith which accompanies new life. Now what's the difference? Well, this old faith, this useless faith, I think is kind of like this. It's believing in Jesus like I believe in Michael Jordan. Now I believe in Michael Jordan. I watch the paper and I say, is he going to play basketball again? I mean, I have seen his move. You know, someone said, this is God in tennis shoes. I have, and I'm dazzled, and I would love to watch that again. Can he do it again after all? Oh, yeah, he can do it. I believe in him. I'm his great fan. I'll stick by him. Now, he doesn't know me, and I don't really know him, and he really doesn't affect my life that much, but I believe in Michael Jordan. And there are people that believe in Jesus just like that intrigued by this wonder worker intrigued by his teaching wow the sermon on the mount 
What a masterpiece. Impressed by his miracles. No one has ever done things like this. This guy is something. Perhaps you respect him for his great ethical system. You find him interesting to talk about and to discuss. This is a unique individual. You're a great fan of Jesus. But maybe that's it. You don't really know him. He doesn't really know you. It doesn't really affect your life. But boy, you're a fan. You know, every time it comes up, you say, well, I, I'm a fan of Jesus, man. I, you can have that other religion. This guy, he's great, man. If that's you, if that describes your faith, listen to this warning. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Because these people had that kind of faith. They were fans. But they were lost. And then there's true faith. True faith is like people laying on the ground in the wilderness. And they're there about to die. And they realize that the reason they're about to die is because God himself has set himself against them because of their wickedness. All they did was grumble. But God's angry. And they say, help me. Oh, God, help me. God says, okay, here's what I want to do. Moses, put that snake up on a pole. and You just look at that snake. Look at the snake. I hate that snake. I want to get away from this stuff. Just look. No, I, I, I got a better plan. I'm not going to do that, God. That's stupid. We're going to get a committee together and figure out a way to eradicate the snakes. That's what we're going to do. Okay, then you're going to die. True faith is faith that helplessly realizes I have no hope. And that Jesus that hung on the cross, as despicable of a sight as it is, as bloody and gory as it is, as much as it's not very clean and neat for us, I understand that he was there in my place and God punished him instead of me. And if that's not true, I don't have anything else to stand on. And I will look to him and say, Lord Jesus, take away my sin and give me a new life. And that kind of faith, that all your eggs in one basket, nowhere else to stand, no other hope kind of faith is the faith of which Jesus says everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That's the faith that is evidence of the mysterious working of the spirit to create a new heart and a new spirit. And that's what it looks like. It trusts in Jesus alone. If that's where your heart is this morning, well, I call you to ask him to save you, to confess your need of him, to put your hope in this, that Jesus died in my place. And by simply trusting him, I'm saved.
Because that urging to do so that you feel in your heart is the Spirit of God renewing, changing. That's how he works when Jesus is proclaimed. Amen. Father, I pray that you would take your word, this glorious gospel, that, Lord, we can't even begin to comprehend or explain adequately. But, oh, Lord, I pray that you would take it and that you would cause us to see clearly the black and white distinction between being a fan of Jesus and having our souls hang on nothing but his death on the cross in our place. Oh God, give us that kind of faith. Renew our souls. Cause us to be reborn, Lord, that we might believe and trust and walk in newness of life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.